0: you
1: ready? Hello, and welcome to The Whole House Podcast, where you can find home, health, and family all in one place. Our team is comprised of moms from different upbringings and backgrounds, and we each have different passions and giftings and strengths. We each represent a different room, and we all make up the whole house. So grab a cup of coffee and join our overly caffeinated ladies here for The Whole House Podcast.
0: Hi, and welcome to The Whole House podcast. Today is Kathleen Guire and I have a special guest, Kristen Peters, and I will let her talk in a few minutes. But we are on our series, Back to Basics. And this week we are doing Back to Basics Brain Development, the Foster and Adoption Edition. So we're going to go into a little bit of brain science. We're going to tell a little bit of our stories and we'll probably go down some rabbit holes because we always do that. And the thing is, Kristen and I were already talking and we just had some really great points, so hopefully we will remember to make those points when <laughs> we're recording. I don't know, it seems to be what we do. We're pre we're pre-talking the podcast and we say some really great things. So before we get started, On our points, I am going to let Kristen tell a little bit about her story of foster care and adoption.
2: So my husband Robert and I decided to start fostering back in 2016. Um, We got approved to foster, and then within, I think, a week, we got a placement. Wow. Um, Because there really are a lot of kids um, that need foster homes. And we got an adorable three and a half year old boy, um, and we fostered for a few months, past two years, and finally a couple weeks ago we got to adopt him. Um, and, Yay! <laughs> which we're super Confetti. excited about. <laughs> <laughs> super excited um, to be done with the foster care stage and. Um, to, you know, start to normalize some more as a family and give him a little bit more sense of permanency and security.
0: Right. And yeah, it's just, well, if you are from West Virginia, you know that there is a foster care crisis here because of the opioid epidemic and any kind of drug, really. There's just, you know, 53% of infants born in our area are born addicted to drugs and alcohol, which is... It just baffles me it's just staggering it's just mind-blowing so there are a lot of children and there are a lot of older children who are in need of homes and unfortunately the foster care system is often not friendly to parents no which is a whole nother episode so we won't go too much into <laughs> that so i met Kristen through her husband Robert because I'm on a task force with him called SHIELD which makes me feel like I'm a superhero just because (laughs) of the name of the task force and um and she's also I mean she's my go-to person for editing and revising and ethical advice in writing (laughs) so there's a reference for for you to that's how I met her and I'll just go a little bit into my story. Again, if this is your first episode, maybe you haven't listened to my story, you can go back and listen to the Guire adoption story. And then there's also a Guire adoption story from the perspective of my eldest daughter, Audrey, who was 12 when we first adopted. My husband, Jerry, and I adopted a sibling group of four from Poland way back in 2000. And because of my experience... Of feeling isolated and confused, and doing all this research on my own because my kids were like, I'm like trying all these things I did with my biological kids, and it just wasn't working. And I was like, I don't understand. So I I did a lot of research and I read a lot of books and I started changing the way I parented, and filling in the gaps of the things that my kiddos missed because they were in an orphanage and they didn't have those parents that were loving, and, and those relationships that they needed. So that's where I'm coming from, and that's why this subject is so important to me. I didn't want any parents in this journey to feel alone, and I think a lot of foster parents feel alone. I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Instant Family. Did you watch that?
2: No, I really want to.
0: You will cry. I <laughs> cried. I cried, like, through the whole thing. I was like, oh, my gosh. But it's it's an amazing movie. It's a great story. A lot of the behaviors of the kids are just spot on. They're spot on. But I would say it's unrealistic how much support they have from the social workers in that movie. It's totally, you know, like the support group of all those families getting together. that that just is not realistic. So that's one of the reasons I do what I do because I don't want people to feel isolated and alone when they're going through this process. So we're gonna talk, we did have some points and I actually, I had posted this video from um, Dr. Karen Purvis Institute of how the brain develops and it's about TBRI. And I watched that video about 300 times so I could write down all the notes from it. And I will definitely post that, but it's a really, really great video about brain development and kids. So we're going to, I'll probably share some of this information while we're talking because it's important to know where your kids came from and what was going on in their brain. So we'll just go ahead and talk about our first point. Kids that come home to us through adoption and foster care have altered brain chemistry caused by stress. And the thing is, whenever a kid goes through the normal attachment cycle, it's relationship that grows the brain. You have a baby, you bring the baby home, they have a need, you meet the need, and that attachment cycle is completed thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And when a child is born, they have, let me make sure I get this number right, they have, um, as they're developing in utero, they have 250 neurons developing per minute. And by birth, we have 100 billion. And if you think of them kind of like little loose wires that are just waiting to connect, that relationship, that responding, that being held by the mother, that being cared for by the mother that's connecting those neurons and making those pathways and growing the brain when there's a break in attachment when those needs are not met when there's neglect or abuse that's when the brain parts of the brain are, are not developing properly so i keep talking I'll let kristen talk for a minute what have you seen in your experience with the science i'm sharing what does this look like in real life to you
2: so for us i think for a while we didn't think about it a whole lot um with our little guy because he really didn't display any super problematic behaviors um but the more that i learn about this the more i can see how um it it has affected him um just comparing him to our biological daughter um which and it's hard to make a direct comparison because they have different personalities and they're different genders And um, for a while, it was hard, too, because she's about two years younger than him. But right now, she's reaching the age where she's the age he was when we got him. Um, So it's easier now for me to see that which things he was doing were normal for a three-and-a-half-year-old and and which things weren't, um, where some of his behaviors were coming from. Like I said, not super problematic behaviors, um, but definitely more... I mean, attention starved. Just wanting your full attention all the time. Right. Um, being, we're in, injecting himself if our daughter was getting more attention. Um, trying to sort of revert to younger behaviors to get attention because that's how she was acting. And in his view, she was getting more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least she was getting attention that he wanted. Um, and I think we're just now getting to a point where his his need for attention is almost caught up maybe um to about the normal the normal levels but I mean for a while it was a lot and it was sort of frustrating for us because you know you know we love you and we love our biological daughter and you know we want to give you attention but we do need to give her attention and the rules can't be exactly the same because you're right. not the same age um so trying to and it was frustrating for us because well, like you said, a lot of the things that that we were trying um, weren't working, mm-hmm. and we couldn't figure out why. Um, right, because it's easy with him to forget um, that he comes from a neglectful background because he didn't have any super in-your-face, you know, exactly bad behaviors.
0: Right, and it's it's always that that puzzle. Like you're always asking yourself, and you don't even want to ask yourself, is this because of his past or is this because of the way I'm parenting right now like what is this because of he's adopted or is this because of something else like am I over exaggerating it and I think part of the issue is we don't talk about it enough I'm not saying you need to go to the grocery store and talk (laughs) to anybody about it but I'm saying that we need to get with other foster and adoptive parents and compare notes and talk about it and look at the science Because the science is not going to lie. If a child has been neglected, then he's already going to have the belief because neglect tells you you don't exist. Like you don't have a right to exist. Which explains the behavior of you need to notice me. You need to pay attention Mm -hmm. to me. You need to notice me. Because he has that belief and that's science. And when we get in our little mom guilt thing, which is (laughs) very common, we're like, what did I do wrong? What am I doing right? Is it because of something that I'm doing that he's acting that way? And no. When you look at it scientifically, which like you were saying that your husband will say, just just tell me what I need to do. Give me, you know. And we like to dig really deep and like, what what are the facts? What's the research say? What does the science say? So what's going on? So I think it's important to know the science. Mm-hmm. That way, when you're parenting You can be proactive and understand where it's coming from instead of questioning Mm -hmm. all the time. And the truth is, that was one of the things we said before we started recording, traditional parenting does not work with these kids because they did not have a traditional beginning. Right. The traditional beginning is, you know, the the woman gets pregnant and everybody's excited and she's happy and everybody in the family's happy. So maybe she's throwing up. That's a little bit of stress on her body. But the whole pregnancy is not completely stressful all the time. So that little one is growing, hearing mom and dad's voice and, you know, being expected and celebrated And then on the other extreme, these kids that we are bringing into our home through adoption and foster care, they may have been in the womb where parents are arguing all the time and maybe mom's getting thrown around the room or, you know, there's drugs and there's not enough nutrition for the baby to grow and there's that cortisol level of the mother is way high it's crossing the placenta, it's affecting the immune system development, it's affecting the brain development, it's affecting all of those things. That does not go away when they come home to us. We want it to. I used to think it would. (laughs) I mean, that was my expectation. It's like, okay, I flew all the way to Poland, you know. I brought these kids back, and now they have a safe home, a secure home. They're eating meals with us and every every need they have is met, Why why won't that past just go away? So it just, it won't. It just doesn't. And my husband, he gave me an example the other day. Like we were talking about this subject. We talk about this kind of stuff all the time. And here's the thing. Like... One of the the things in the foster care system, and I'm not speaking against birth parents, but there are some situations that are just you do not want to send a child back into. And we think we're always trying in the foster care system. It's like reunification is always the plan. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. But if you think about it as an adult, let's say, Kristen, someone... And, um, like, maybe you're at the grocery store and you're in the parking lot and some guy comes up and assaults you and you file the police report. That guy goes to jail and whatever. Everything's all done. He gets out of jail. Would you want to be reunified with him? I mean, okay, Kristen, here's that guy you remember from the parking lot. He wants to be your buddy now. That's what we do to these kids.
2: Right. And it's complicated because they do still... Love. Oh yes, yeah, of the course. The families they came from, and that's normal to them. Um, and it's we thought, you know, if you got a younger kid, it'd be easier because they maybe won't remember um, a lot of the stuff that happened. And there's kind of pros and cons because right. I think that he won't remember a lot of the things that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the the downside is he couldn't tell us very well everything that right. happened to him. Um, and that makes it harder for us to understand, um, you know, where things are coming from and if he has, if he has any triggers, what things, you know, might be triggering for him or if, you know, like how much does he remember? Right. What exactly did he go through? Um, and so it's, it's kind of, that's been sort of the downside. Right. That, that is the really, down. Yeah. I mean, he disclosed things to us, but then Later he he told us no, that didn't happen and, and he's three and a half and didn't have a super firm grasp on, you know, right. truth versus <laughs> truth versus lies, reality versus fantasy. So it's hard for us to know exactly what he went through and exactly what what we're dealing with. Um, so whereas with an older kid, they would remember more but also I would assume, be able to tell you, you know, more right. about what happened to them. And then that gives you context, which makes it easier for you to handle, you know, problematic behaviors. Just understanding where your kid is coming from and, you know, having that extra background information, I think is right.
0: Helpful. That that is helpful. And you're right, it is. It, they can't verbalize what happened to them because they didn't have the vocabulary when it did happen to them. And I think another thing that we have to remember is our kids have what's called, we all have them, they're called state memories. They're those memories in our mind that we, they're there, but we can't express them verbally. Sometimes we block things out, and that's one thing with older kids. Even older kids will block stuff out because Mm -hmm. they don't want to remember it. And I know because of some of the trauma in my early childhood I've blocked things out and I'd like them to stay blocked. Right. <laughs> sometimes we we can't deal with everything at once. Mm-hmm. Just like it's like peeling an onion. We just want you know just take off one little tiny layer at a time. So what we're stuck with is trying to figure out what the triggers are, mm-hmm. whether we know where they come from or not, and how to help the child because when we're talking about these behaviors, we're not saying these kids are bad.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and we're saying that something happened to them that has put them in survival mode so they feel that fight flight or freeze all the time Mm -hmm. and they're fearful all the time or they want that acceptance and attention all the time and they're constantly seeking it and so we have to go overboard with that until they get satiated in that department it's filling in those gaps of what they missed. Mm-hmm. And so it is. It's like, it's complicated. It's not like a straight, linear, here's how we parent, this is what we do, you follow these three steps, and there you go, you're done. Right. And I do want to backtrack just for a moment. That scenario I said about, you know, being assaulted in the parking lot, I know that it's different right? because of what you said, you know, definitely We kids, no matter how traumatic our beginning was, we have a love for our parents that's undeniable. And I would never, I would never speak against that because that's just what family is. But that doesn't mean that that family is the safest place for them to be.
2: It's hard because there's there there are those two sides to it where the kid you know loves their family because it is their family, right? Um, and then there's the side where they were victims of neglect or abuse, and you're sending them back with the person who victimized them, and right. it's hard to. There's no like one size fits all solution. There's no. It's not black and white. No. You no. Know, it's that's what makes it so tricky is because when you focus only on reunification you're only looking at the one side of it where they really love their families you know and and you do lose a lot when you give up your biological family um because you know you you got a family culture your family can connect with you about different quirks in your personality or you know medical information and things and so it's a lot to lose but also you have to look at the side of like you were saying they they're their victims and those are their abusers and um so you know there's not obviously like a one right
0: there's not because it's different situations and the thing is the one thing I always say about culture because people have asked me since my kids were internationally adopted and I belong to international support groups and would go to these picnics with kids from you know all over the place And people would ask me, well, you know, how do you keep their culture? Like, do you make Polish food all the time and stuff like that? Here's the thing you have to remember. There are kids that have come from neglect and abuse. Their culture was neglect and abuse.
2: Right. Like,
0: I had to tell people that, you know, because people would say, well, you took your kids out of Poland. Like, do you understand that they lived in an orphanage? They did not go to museums or okay. symphonies or plays or swimming pools mm-hmm. or parks. Or They went to parks with us <laughs> when we got there. We, we got to show them more of Poland than they had ever seen in their whole life when we lived there for five weeks. So remember what, what culture really means is what you are experiencing on a daily basis, whatever your society right. is. So even if your child is adopted from China, I'm not saying don't celebrate Chinese New Year or, you know, do all of those things. Our adoption support group did that. You know, we would celebrate those kind of things. But remember what culture really means. And if their culture was abuse and neglect, then no, you don't want (laughs) to. You don't want to keep that culture in their life. You want them to have a new culture of safety, So, like I said, we go down... Let me see what our next point was, because I don't even remember. Oh, we pretty much... We were talking about this already. The attachment cycle has been broken. Breaks in attachment cause a fear response, and we need to work on felt safety. Yeah, I wanted to cover that one, because felt safety and real safety are two totally different things. For instance... When I am in a room at an event, I like to be able to see the door. I like to know where all the exits are. For some reason, that makes me feel safer. Am I really safer? (laughs) Probably not. Am I safe in the first place? Probably so, most of the time. (laughs) But there's a big difference between feeling safe and being safe, and we have to remember Even when we bring a child home through foster care or adoption, and we have, you know, like we have the code locks on our doors here in my house, and we have all of these things that should make a child feel safe. There's food in the pantry, there's food in the refrigerator. When we brought our kids home, one of of ours really, really struggled with the issue of feeling like she was never going to have enough to eat. So she would stuff food in a backpack, and she was four years old. And she's given me permission to tell this story. Um, She would just, you know, rolls, (laughs) broken up food, and put it in her backpack. And I would constantly, two or three times a day, show her the pantry. Here's the pantry. And I even had to make a snack basket with crackers and... Um, Nutrition bars and you know, fruit snacks and stuff like this is always here. You can get something anytime you need to get something because you know, you think, Well, wait a minute, that's food, that's not safety. Yes, it is safety Mm -hmm. to a kid who hasn't had access to food. That is safety when you feel like you're not going to have another meal or you're not going to have enough to eat or you don't know when you're going to eat again, then that is definitely safety. So um, did your son struggle with any of these?
2: Not, not a whole lot with food. Um, we did talk about what we would do, if, because that's an, an example that they bring up a lot in um, the foster care classes is, mm-hmm. you know, you might have a kid who's always worried about where are they going to get their food next. And we had talked about it and decided if it makes the kid feel safer to have a box of snacks in their room that they can access whenever, like, totally fine. Right, um, but also we've especially since we, we moved houses, we have um, a basket of snacks that the kids can reach. They can reach apples in the fridge, and and I I usually have cheese cut up for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are things that they that they can reach, and I almost never tell them no to a snack. Right, which I probably should more than I do, <laughs> but I almost never tell them no. So I don't know that he's had a whole lot of opportunity to experience that um, with us, and I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm not sure exactly um, what all he experienced in in his in his background. We were told that um, they would see him at three and a half playing in a busy road. Um, oh wow! That like the kids that rode the bus on that route would call him, you know, the kid that the kid that plays in the
0: road. Wow!
2: Um, so we know that that there was a lack of supervision, but I don't know how far that went one way or the other.
0: um, Right. And often that will cause um, lack of cause and effect thinking. If they hadn't had that supervision or that um, parent telling them constantly, okay, now, you know, if you go on the road, you might get hit by a car, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. So they don't have that, that thought line in their brain.
2: We have noticed that with him, too. I mean, it, like, mind-boggling to us. Because we would, um, he would do something that we had said, don't do this. If you do this, this is the consequence. And then when we would discipline him, his response would be, well, I don't want to take a nap. And we're like, I don't think you understand how this works. Right. (laughs) I know you don't want to do it. (laughs) That's why, you know, that's why this is the punishment for it. Right. If you liked it, it wouldn't be a deterrent. And we're only just now getting to the point, I mean, you know, almost two and a half years later getting to the point where he doesn't say, he still does sometimes, he'll be like, well, I don't want, you know, and, and, you know, and why about, but I mean, that'll be his argument, you know, his argument won't be, you're so mean, or I hate you, or it'll just be, well, I don't want to, as if he's honestly confused as to why, Exactly. and getting the cause and effect, and we have tried to to emphasize that when we can you know that you chose we told you if you do this this is what happens you chose you're in control it's not us doing this to you this is what you picked because we told you you know these were the options you made a bad choice and you know
0: yeah that's and that's a great way to phrase it because it's really important for the child to have a voice And one of the ways that they have a voice is is you letting them choose things. But another way is to say, you know, you chose this. So because you chose this, this is what's going to happen. It has nothing to do with me. And I can remember I made these little flow charts for my youngest because he struggled with that more than any of them. And it was just a cartoon I drew. I'm not an artist. Please don't think you can't do this unless you have... An ability to draw, it was just like a little circle head, and I drew this flowchart. And on one side, it was, you know, if I do what I'm asked to do, this is what I'm choosing. I'm choosing, and then I drew that. you know, if you're mathematical, you know all about flowcharts. I love (laughs) flowcharts. You know, these things are going to happen. I'm going to get along better with my siblings because they'll be Happy that I, you know, I cooperated. You know, I strew all these things all the way down to the bottom. And then on the other side, if I'm asked to do whatever and I say no, these are going to be my consequences because mm-hmm. of my choices. You know, I might have to do and then kind of fill in the blank or... Also, my siblings might be upset because we didn't get to do this activity. You know, like, I just really drew it out literally Mm -hmm. because sometimes these kids don't have that literal foundation. And if you think about it literally and logically, can you imagine for... He was three and a half when he came Mm -hmm. home. For three and a half years, not having anyone guide you or give you direction or boundaries, then kind of your mind's already set that you don't have to have any boundaries or direction. So all of a sudden, someone's telling you, you have to take a nap. Or right now is when you sit at the table and eat dinner. Like one of mine was like, she struggled with that. She wanted to eat all the time, but at the same time, when it was time to sit, As a family, Mm -hmm. around the table, she would just slide out of her chair like 20 (laughs) (laughs) times. Like, okay, this is when we eat together, you know. So those things, they're struggling with that because they already have the line of thought. Mm -hmm. And we know for a fact, I mean, it just makes sense that when you're in an orphanage with 57 other kids, someone is not doing, even though they had a great caregiver, she was amazing, She didn't have that time to be one-on-one with all Mm -hmm. these kids all the time. So they're just kind of like wandering around doing whatever they want. Right. For most of the day, and the only times that they had any direction or supervision is if they, if everyone in the orphanage went outside all at the same time or, you know, that kind of stuff. So you have to think about how their mind is already set. And what pathways are already formed. So those were already formed in his brain. So he's like, why are you telling me I have to take that? I'm not going to I don't I'm I'm going to go out there and run in the road. That's what I want to do. He
1: didn't have a whole lot
2: of problem like he he would listen to what we told him to do, but he didn't, uh-huh. he totally didn't understand that in the in the moments where he it was usually him forgetting to do proactive things, not like direct defiance right. usually. Um, you know, or, or acting up at school or, you know, he does, he tends to not listen, I think, more at school than he does at home. And so we've been kind of underscoring that with him. Just, you know, you know what happens if, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't get a sticker at school and you come home, you know, you won't be able to play through video games. And he has seemed like he's, he's finally getting it because now when he doesn't get a sticker at school, he comes home and he's like crying. Oh. And he's like, I
0: didn't get a sticker. Now
2: I can't play video games. And we're like, yes, well, I'm glad. Like, I'm glad that you understand. Yeah, that's amazing that he's making that connection. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And I feel for you, but you picked. I I mean, I can't. I can't unpick that for you. Right, and I try try to express that to him, too, just that, you know, I'm sorry. Right. But I can't let you play video games. When I said, if you don't get a sticker, you can't, you know, I I can't let you do it now. I mean, I really wish I could. I think that that was a, a... dumb thing to lose video games over but you picked you know I wasn't there to make the decision for you
0: right and I think it's it's amazing it's wonderful that you say that because then you're affirming to him you know what I really care about you it really stinks that you don't get to play video games and then it's not about well that behavior or you were stupid or you were you know what I mean because they already think that it's unfortunate I know um We we joke about it all the time that our youngest son is going to write a book called It's Stupid, and it's going to be like a thousand pages long (laughs) because that was like that's like his. First response is, I'm stupid, or that's stupid, or you're stupid. <laughs> and it's just their frame of mind. It's not that they mean anything mean by it about mm-hmm. them, you know, it's just that self doubt. So that reaffirming of their value mm-hmm. is so um, important to say, you know what, that, that really stinks. You're an amazing kid that just made a bad decision today, but I can't do anything about that. I wish I could. Right.
2: And I've tried to, now I'm trying to add the next step of of telling him, you know, you made a bad choice today, I'm sure that you'll make a better choice tomorrow. Right. and tomorrow when you want to talk in line, remember that talking in line is not worth not being able to play your video games at night. Right. You know, like trying to get him to, and he's he's young too, um, but trying to get him to connect, you know, because right now he's almost six, getting ready to turn six, but trying to get him to connect, you know. To think about it ahead of time, to think about the consequences ahead of time instead of just afterwards. He's getting right. closer. Yeah, I'm not really
0: good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm a lot older than that, and I'm like, whoops, should have thought that one through. <laughs> but you know, it's it is sad, and I'm not I'm not railing against teachers or anything because they're in a position where they have all of these kids that they're basically parenting all day, and. There's so many kids that have had trauma, and there's not a lot of room in the classroom for that, right. And it's hard. I feel I really feel for public school and private right. school teachers who are dealing with that all day long and they don't have they're not equipped for it. And so I, I think it's it's very, very common. I talk to so many foster and adoptive parents who are, you know, messaging me or calling me or emailing me saying, uh, this happened at school. I'm dealing with this at school, and dealing with this at school, and it's it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for a child who doesn't have that cause and effect thinking, or has developmental delays because of their past, not because of them, not because there's something wrong with them. Just that they haven't caught up, and they don't read social cues well, mm-hmm. and. They don't remember things well, like you know one of the things my my youngest struggled with, which the psychologist had to explain this to me like he can only process one instruction at a time and so when you're in a situation where you're you know especially at school when you're like, okay, number one, you do this, number two, you do this, number three, you do this, and then they're just staring off into space because like what was number 1 <laughs> they just can't process it so it's not their fault it's not the teacher's fault mm-hmm. it's just something that we need to begin to deal with in our in our society we need to change our culture mm-hmm. we need to change the way that we're we're helping these kids because the traditional way isn't helping because I know when I was in school if the teacher said something and I was writing it down. Well, it's kind of weird, kid. But you know, it's like, okay, what'd you say? Number one, do this. Number two, do right. this. And if you can't process number one, then you're not writing anything down. Right. You're not drawing your little picture like, okay, this is what I need to do, and the next I need to do this. So, and there's got to be a way to change that. I mean, I know I have a friend, Molly McCartney, who runs the Beacon Barn here in taylor county and one of her goals in life is to get all the teachers trauma trained Mm -hmm. in our area and she's you know she's amazing um i think that's a great goal and i hope that we get that all done because that's what they need because some of the kids are getting in trouble for things that they literally they can't regulate not right. they won't regulate, they can't they physically cannot regulate, and that's a big difference between won't you can't we can't look at this and say that's just defiance when it's not defiance right it's just it's the brain it's can't and whenever somebody this is a really great example that um, empowered to connect training always uses like if you are in a situation like maybe a classroom or a church or whatever. And a little girl is wheeled in in a wheelchair. We'll jump up, like, oh my goodness, how can we accommodate her? What do we need to do to help her? Mm-hmm. But then you get a kid who walks in who has had neglect and abuse, trauma in their life. You can't see it on them. Mm-hmm. And so the accommodation is not made. And often, when you even when you tell a teacher, they're just they don't understand. Right, not because they're trying to be ignorant, because they're not educated.
2: Right, and it leaves you in a situation as the parent where you're walking a very fine line between supporting the teacher because you do want your kid to respect authority, exactly. And, you know, and you should have the expectation that you're going to listen, um, but then also as a parent, recognizing which things, which things that your child has gotten in trouble with, really aren't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he's gotten in trouble for some things that they're normal little kid things and so some things you know I'll really you know try to hammer home with him like this was really bad Mm -hmm. I mean like you know here's the scale this This is really heavy this one's pretty bad (laughs) um and other things where he'll come home and be like I didn't get a sticker and, and I'll just very briefly be like you need to listen to your teacher it's usually, you know, the teacher's like, I've told him multiple times not to do this. Like, multiple times today. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he's in kindergarten. So it's right. not that they're expecting him to remember all of the rules right. all the time. But being like, I, you know, I, I reminded him multiple times and he still did it. Um, and, you know, some of the things I'll be like, you know, you're, you're a big boy and you can do this. And I, you can listen to your teacher and I know that you want to talk. But right. I, I sympathize. Um, but you know, you, you gotta listen. And then there's other things where it's, it's really not, you know, that big of a deal. And, you know, so I'll tell him you your teacher told you not to do it. So you can't do it. Um, you know, normally this would be okay. Or some things I've told him it's okay to do that at home. I don't care if you do that at home. Exactly. Um, But you know, like there's things that are appropriate for school, things that are appropriate for home. When you're at school, your teacher sets the rules. And so even if, if i disagree with it or i think it's a dumb rule or you know like trying to back the teacher up that way but not coming down on your kid too hard when you can see objectively as a parent like that's it's really not that big deal, exactly
0: and the, yeah and i have a really good example of that you know um i homeschooled my kids for 21 years but we belong to a a large support group and so we would do a lot of stuff together so it's You know, it's the same thing. They still have teachers. They still... So we were on a field trip, and on this field trip, we have this... We're in this room where someone is showing the kids birds and reptiles. Like, they actually have them in the room, (laughs) and I don't know. The room is just stuffed with kids. But anyway, the kids kept inching forward, closer and (laughs) closer and closer to this person who's holding an owl, Mm -hmm. and... This person would say, you know, kids, you need to scoot back. And I would tell the kids to scoot back, and they would all inch back. They would scoot back. Then they would begin to inch forward again. (laughs) Then they would, you know, it's like we did that like 15 times. And I remember talking to one of the moms after the field trip was over and we're all loading up in our cars, and she was like, they just weren't listening. I said, well, they were listening. And she said, Well, what do you mean? I said, Well, every time I told them to scoot back, they scooted back. And she was like, Oh. That's true. They did. And I said, well, they were just so excited they wanted to get up. They, so they would move up, and I would say, scoot back, and they would screw back, and they would move up. And they, they were listening every single time. But because they were so excited and they couldn't regulate their excitement, they would move forward. So we have to remember that. That's just basic child development. Mm-hmm. They, If they're listening, which they were, none of them said, no, I'm not scooting back. None of them were defiant. In fact, some of them would look down and realize, like, wait, how did I get all the way up here? <laughs> what am I doing? I'm supposed to be back behind that mask and tape line, you know? So that's just, and unfortunately for teachers, so much is expected of them. So you're right. It is, it's that fine line of knowing, like, well, wait a minute, that's just, Basically, what kids are going to do, Mm -hmm. and when you have had trauma, then you know definitely maybe you're going to do it more often, it's going Mm -hmm. to be more regular, and it's going to be more pronounced if you've had trauma. So, sometimes if you're wondering, is this because they were adopted or is this just normal? Well, if it's amplified, often it's because they've had trauma, they're doing exactly the same thing but with more frequency. And it's louder, you know, and it's, like, more pronounced. And you're like, okay, well, they just can't regulate yet. They'll get there. Mm-hmm. If you're helping them, like, you you are definitely helping him. I want to see, oh, this last point. Forgot about the notes again. I'm like, wait, we had one more point. Um, your past parenting affects your present parenting This is my least favorite point because it's like you cannot bring your child to a place of hope and healing if you have not gone there yourself. Dr. Karen Purvis said that, and I love her for it, and I don't like her for that (laughs) at the same time. But it is so true because if you have had trauma in your past, even if it's many traumas, like Lori on the team says, death by paper cuts. Like those kids who teased you on the playground and you've never gotten over it, those kind of things. Maybe you had some sort of um, reading disability or something that caused people to tease you all the time. That's death by paper cuts. But what's, what's really important for us as adults is to recognize our triggers so that we can not take them out on our children. And our kids will trigger our triggers very, very frequently. And it, take, it took me a while to figure out why, like when my kids would do a certain thing, that I would just instantly get angry. Well, that's a trigger. And to research in my own life, why is that a trigger for me? What is that attached to? And and what do I need to find hope and healing, get people to pray for me, search the scriptures, find out what's going on and why I'm doing that. So I think that one one of my triggers was definitely because of the trauma in my life is any rejection of me. As soon as one of my kids would reject me, not like say no, but I mean like really verbally reject me. Like I hate you, shut up, leave me alone, no, you know, that kind of thing. It would instantly trigger my insecurity and you'd be like, oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong? And then you have to go back in your life and figure out, is this a trigger because of something that either my parents, my grandparents, aunt and uncle, someone said to me that's triggering that? Or am I dealing with this situation right here in the right now? And often it was because I wasn't dealing with a now situation. I was all of a sudden triggered to something in my past and I was reacting to that. So I had to come to terms with that and really do some prayerful research into my past and find some hope and healing. and I'm not saying that I'm perfect or that I have attained that or that I will ever be completely over those things. but it's a, it's an important part of parenting kids that have come from difficult situations because I find across the board so many people who have that desire to adopt and foster, They have that desire because they had some trauma in their childhood, which is a natural thing. Like, oh my gosh, I had these terrible things happen to me. I want to help somebody else who's had terrible things happen to them. So I'm going to put Kristen on the spot and ask her, like, what do you think about this? Do you have any triggers? I did
2: not have a traumatic childhood. But I will say, I think even if you haven't had a traumatic childhood, that level of self awareness and introspection is important it's, and it and the importance is exaggerated when you're parenting kids from hard places because like you said a lot of times you're reacting not to the current situation mm-hmm. you're not really reacting to what your kids said you're 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 hearing things that your kids aren't actually saying sometimes right and I think that happens even if you didn't have a traumatic childhood. Like, everybody has, you know, like, personality triggers kind of. like. Yes. And your kids figure out how to push your buttons um, because they like to have that feeling of control.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, you
2: think how, like, exhilarating it must be for a two-year-old to be able to make an adult lose it. Um, I mean, I right. <laughs> like, I mean, if you think about if you have siblings and you think about how fun it is to push your siblings because you know right where they are to push your siblings yes. button and you know they're going to lose it, and that gives you I think kind of like a, a rush of like power and control and kids don't have a lot of of that in their lives right. really, and so it totally makes sense even if your kid's not from a hard place that they would love to push your buttons, um, and so you have to be aware of of what your buttons are and make sure that you're. Reacting proportionately and <laughs> in that's a way that is very, very good word in a way that is child
1: appropriate <laughs> child because
2: they they don't they don't know that that's what they're like that's what they're doing but they don't know that's what they're doing right um, and you're hearing as an adult you're hearing things in, in the context of your entire life experiences and all of your insecurities and if you have trauma in your background you're taking it in the context of that and that kid does not know any of that. And right. it's your job as the adult to be self-aware enough to not escalate the situation. And then if you think about kids from hard places, not only are they kids, so they, you know, they don't have the the brain development to to see everything that's going on that you need to be able to see as right. an adult. Um not only, you know, are they normal kids in that respect, but it's exaggerated because they don't really a lot of the times have a a good sense of what normal is anyways. They're already not sure what normal looks like. So they're not going to be like, mom, you're overreacting. They don't, they don't know, you know, and they, and they don't know, you know, so as the adult, it's, it's your job. You have to be like self aware enough to know, to ask yourself questions like that. Like, am I responding to what my kid actually said? Or am I responding to the way that it made me feel? Am I responding to something from my past or to, like, an insecurity that I have? And because, I mean, I've had to watch that. Like I said, I didn't have a traumatic childhood, but I have to, to watch sometimes. Sometimes things that your kids do just make you really unreasonably angry. Right. And as an adult, you have to be able to step back and be, like... It really wasn't that big of a deal. Like, it made right. me mad, but it, there's no reason why it should really have made me that mad. Right. It, it is.
0: It's so important to just step back for a few seconds. Like, I think that my kids knew that when I went into the bathroom for a second, there was, <laughs> it was probably better for them that I did to go in there and pray, not to use the bathroom, but just, like, and then come out and be like okay, (laughs) you know, am I... And thinking to myself, am I reacting to what just happened or am I reacting unreasonably and disproportionately? Like you said, you know, like we have to think about those things. And the thing is, we often think, okay, that child is doing it on purpose, like they're pushing my buttons, and maybe they are, but you have to remember, they don't have an encyclopedia of you in their room going, okay, back up. Um, you know, 10 years ago, Aunt Mabel said to my mom when she spilled the milk, like, how could you, like, they don't have that. They're not reading our history. We may know a little bit about their history, but they don't know our whole history, so they're not doing that on purpose to that extent. Mm-hmm. They might be doing it to get a reaction. And you talked about the word, the word normal. And here's the thing. If you adopt an older child and if their normal was chaotic and disorganized parenting and yelling and screaming and one reaction one day and a different reaction another day. And they get you out of control. They might be thinking, okay, now it's normal. Right. I, i'm feeling like it's normal now right. i got it going now <laughs> i was wondering where that went but the truth is when you are out of control your child is in control mm-hmm. and that's not good parenting we all do it i'm not saying i've never done that i've done that <laughs> lots of times and then after the event going what like why did i do that why did i react that way but so what we are really trying to seek in our parenting is being proactive, being in control, because when we are out of control, we are talking about felt safety, children do not feel safe when we are out of control. We may just be yelling,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but especially if there are older children who were adopted at you know seven, eight, like our oldest son was seven when we brought him home he may immediately be transported to some violent thing that happened to him mm-hmm. before he came home. And we're just thinking, why are you on the floor sobbing? Because all I did was yell at you, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just like that. I just shared in a blog post recently. Oh, it was for S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> I was trying to be like, where was it? <laughs> I write so many different things. Like one evening, my husband, Jerry, came home from work and... My um, son, Damien, he was was eight at the time, so he'd been home for about a year. And Jerry came home, and it was a nice day. They were going to go outside. Damien wanted him to go outside. And Jerry, just on the landing of the steps, just starts undressing like a guy, like takes his (laughs) belt off, whips it off. He whips off his belt, and Damien just hit the ground sobbing, yelling, like, don't beat me, don't beat me. And we're standing there like, what is going on? And, of course, Jerry had to, like, keep reassuring him, you know, I'm just changing my clothes, buddy. I'm not, I'm not going to beat you. But he was instantly transported. Mm-hmm. And that's not even a situation of Jerry acting disproportionately to whatever the situation was. That was just a normal, mm-hmm. like, I'm changing my clothes right here on the landing instead of going into my bedroom. And... So we don't even know, like you said, we don't know everything that happened to our Mm -hmm. kids. Even if we get this written history or we talk to the psychologist or whatever. So we had this long meeting with the psychologist and I felt like I didn't know anything after I came out of that meeting. We don't even know. So I kind of got off track again. (laughs) But um, before we finish this up, do you have any... I always like to do this; this kind of catches you off guard. But do you have any advice for someone who um, has already a foster child in their home, or they're thinking about adopting? What is your, what advice do you have them for them? One thing.
2: I think even if you're planning on adopting and fostering young children, um, that it's really important to research the stuff that we've talked about with brain development and, um, just different methods of parenting, how to, how to parent kids, because you won't necessarily see, um, you might not see like super problematic behaviors. Like with Mm -hmm. with our son, we haven't seen any super problematic behaviors. And I kind of wish that I'd done this research earlier because I just assumed, well, we don't need it. Mm -hmm. We're only going to do younger kids, it's not going to be an issue. They will only ever remember having been loved. And um, so, I think the science, learning the science of it, is super important because even if you're not seeing effects of it, or you can't conceive of how you know it possibly would still be affecting them, knowing that it does physically alter their brains is important, right? Um, Just so that you have you know context for your child, even if you don't think you need it or you're not seeing it affect them necessarily because probably a lot of the things that, that your kids do that you're just like, why? <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's, it's probably just, you know, even if you're not seeing like behavioral symptoms of it, that they have actually been, you know, physically altered by their their early childhood experiences. Um, so that's what I would recommend doing the research, even if you think you're not going to need it.
0: Um, yeah. That is a good point, because I have a lot of parents that I talk to who adopted infants, like straight home from the hospital infants, and will say to me, well, I don't need to learn any of that stuff because that's not it. it's not going to apply mm-hmm. in this situation. And it is. It's important to know the science. And the thing is, like Kristen said, if you're not seeing behaviors or defiance, that doesn't mean that they're, that they're not affected. So you just need to be armed prepared Mm -hmm. and like i said i'll share this video about tbri and definitely look into dr karen purvis institute and look into empowered to connect there's all kinds of videos on their sites Mm -hmm. that will help you and they're already made they're already out there and the connected child is a great resource the whole brain child is a great resource I'll just have to list a bunch of books that I recommend after this episode. So thanks for joining us today. And thank you, Kristen, for being on the podcast today. And we will see you next week. Bye. We're so
1: glad you could join us here for the Whole House podcast. Please subscribe. And if you give us a review, we might pick our favorite and send you a prize. Please remember to like the Whole House Facebook page. And follow us on Instagram at the underscore whole underscore house. And please, please sign up with your email on our website, thewholehouse.org, to be notified when new things are happening here at The Whole House. Thanks so much for listening.